Greetings, and welcome back to a special holiday edition of the podcast. This episode, we're joined by Mr. Rafi Tamizian, Senior Portfolio Manager and Co-Managing Director of the Energy Team at Canoe Financial, a Canadian independent investment management firm with approximately $13 billion under management. Prior to Canoe, Rafi spent 13 years at First Energy Capital, a leading investment dealer that focused on the energy industry. Rafi left Canoe in 2008 as Vice Chairman and Managing Director and has held numerous public and private, charity, and government board positions since. Rafi currently sits on the Board of Directors for Artist Exploration, Well Ventures Corp., RS Energy Services, and Chance Oil & Gas. In addition, Rafi holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics from the University of Calgary. Among other things, we sat down and discussed Rafi's updated energy investment thesis and took a look back into the golden era of energy investment banking. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Enjoy. This podcast episode is sponsored by Conate Water Solutions. Do you need cost-effective water sourcing options to supply your next drilling or completions program? Conate Water Solutions is a specialized hydrogeology company focused on water well drilling, testing, and water management services in Western Canada and Texas. Contact info at conatewater.com or check out conatewater.com for more details. This episode is brought to you by Canada Action, whose aim is to promote the importance of Canada's energy industry, which is the bedrock of our nation's economy, providing hundreds of thousands of jobs and economic opportunities across the country. Learn more at canadaaction.ca or check out Canada Action on social media. This podcast is sponsored by HeadRacingCanada.com. In partnership with four-time Olympian Manny Osborne Parody, HeadRacingCanada.com is offering European factory performance ski gear from its online storefront by passing brick-and-mortar savings on to customers. Check out HeadRacingCanada.com for more info on the 2024 collection and get your high-performance ski gear for the upcoming season. you ready we can start let's do it good morning mr rafi tamizia good morning thank you very much for doing this oh it's absolutely my pleasure this is part two yeah i enjoyed it last time um, happy to be back we're recording today we'll probably release this on christmas so it'll be a christmas special for the listener oh, okay <laughs> good excellent up to this time you've been one of the most popular guests on the podcast oh wow that's flattering so, thank you something about energy and investing i think uh, there's some magic to the listener so yeah I enjoyed it in my life. Have you been out skiing yet this year? I, I just was out this weekend. I was at Island Lake actually and got to do some early turns. I was a little nervous because after my uh, podcast last year, I subsequently tore my ACL completely really? off and uh, decided to rehab without surgery. So I was going back out there for the first time without any support and it was i'm happy to report back it was a success so it feels tough it was i was nerve-wracking but for some reason tight hamstrings seem to mean <laughs> I, I can have yeah. i can survive without uh without having to do the surgery so yeah well i thought for the purposes of today's conversation we could structure it around your current investment thesis maybe a bit of an update from last time and um but before we did that maybe you Rewind the clock back to the mid-90s, to the first energy days. Yeah. 
always been interested in that era of the energy world. It's it's a it's a period of time that won't be repeated. Really, it has everything to do with the stage that the basin was in. Really, when people ask me about that time, I don't think I was even aware necessarily how much capital was going to be required and the opportunity that represented itself in Canada relative to other basins that you could invest in. I think my partners at the time, guys like uh, Murray and Davidson and Wilson, you know, they were Grafton. They were all very alert to that probably. And they just saw me as a young guy who could help feed it. So I got to learn with those guys and uh, over 13 or 14 years, it was fast learning. And we were basically empowered to scour the globe of institutional capital and let them know about the great opportunity in Canadian investing in energy and, and the base and the quality of the resource, the quality of the Canadian financial system, which would have been critical at the time too. Anywhere as far as even our human rights track record meant something to a lot of different countries, how they would put capital in. Imagine when you're putting money into investing into Guyana now, you hear a lot about it and, and the risks that you have to think about there. Somebody putting capital into Canada at that time, it seemed secure. And so we were spending a couple billion dollars in the basin at that time. By the time I left the industry in 08, we were spending you know north of 60 billion a year in the basin. So oil sands development, extreme. There was enormous amount of interest and, and curiosity around the shales that was developing at that time. It didn't really blossom for another few years to, after that with the technology, multi-frac horizontal technology. But regardless, just the amount of capital that was was needed just wasn't going to be satisfied from Canadian generalist investors. And ourselves and other boutiques like Peters and Newcrest and Tristone and all these guys propped up and that was all of our agendas was just get capital in to this basin, get the activity going. You remember your first day at First Energy? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I uh, I walked in and I sat on the sales desk and I mean, I was very lucky because Dean Proden had just left the desk to go to corporate finance mm -hmm. and I've effectively inherited his seat. So I, there was no, there's no cold calling or anything like that. It was just, here you go. You know, things about energy, go talk to these people about it. And, and I was given a portfolio and then they said, now get to know some of these oil and gas executives better. I remember meeting Murray Mullen on his IPO. The boys at Amber Energy, Chason and Ken McNeil. There was Paragon was an early one. All these little companies that were developing and starting up their businesses. And I got to take these guys on the road, travel in North America and Europe with them to introduce them to. And I had their attention for four or five days at a time. There was Baytex too. There was NCAL, Dave Johnson. All these guys were just... I had their attention. So it was almost like getting a cheap, the cheapest MBA you could possibly get because I was getting paid 
to get educated. It was incredible. I didn't know it at the time. I only look back now and realize that was <laughs> happening. Yeah. Pretty super awesome. Why First Energy? Do you know somebody there already or did you think to yourself, this looks pretty good? I do a lot of them. Uh, I left the oil patch and went to First Marathon to replace Jim Davidson's seat that started, he had started First Energy. And uh, I went to First Marathon because my dad had gone to school with the guy running the office, Jerry Shaw, and he called me up. And then Jerry got sick and passed away like two years later and I didn't feel this this connection to them. And and there were I had a bunch of friends there, Scott Ingalls included and uh, Davidson. And these guys pushed me hard and said, come over and you need to be here with us. And they were putting together their their plan. I didn't understand that. I was just a piece of it. And I only understood it once I was part of it and engrossed in it. But good for them. They, I got to give a lot of the credit to the, the vision of the managing directors at that time. Sometimes talent spots talent. <laughs> sure. I like, no, that's flattering to say it that way, but I wouldn't have known that at the time. From your perspective, why was First Energy so successful? It was the relationship. Uh, you know what? We were Calgary-based, and if I were to simplify it, we were energy people trying to make energy decisions. We weren't financial guys trying to make energy decisions. We were very focused, and our peers tried to do this too, and not all of them did it as well, and some did it better, but it was our ability to be a partner with the producer, not the partner with the institutions that are investing. It's like, I'm not here representing the institutions that are going to bring the money in. I'm here representing the producers and the services that need the money. And they gave, that gives them a lot more confidence that you're aligned with them. That gave us a lot more ability to cohabitate in their growth, which created our growth. Did you ever stop and think to yourself that maybe this was not your average investment bank and something was going really well and that do you remember that um, feeling you know i learned at first marathon the whole eat what you kill strategy and i think that was probably the big thing it was like i don't want a salary i want to have my job laid out for me what do i got to accomplish i want to be a shareholder i want to be an owner i want to participate in that and i want to be paid for my success and I think that was how we were all wired when we were there at First Energy too. To know that I was part of something special, I'd say to you, we were running around with our heads cut off. And if they weren't cut off, they were spinning in it at miles an hour. You just didn't even know. Every time you turned around, you had another conference that you had to host and manage and managing people together, the producers and the, the right investors and it was a it was a chaotic time and fun and again like i said i was i was learning without realizing really that's the sell side i had no idea how to interpret the buy side i knew how to interpret the producers and the services and the sell side i didn't understand the buy side at all which was my other half of my clients and it's now what i do for the last 14 years and it's just I would recommend any banker to take 
time and work on the buy side for six months and go back to banking. Mm -hmm. And you'll become such a better salesperson of your business if you could do that. I think the problem is if you go over to the buy side, you won't come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, nice to be handing out money. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that those guys who started it and maybe yourself kind of viewed themselves from an entrepreneurial lens more so, or is it bankers? Or I get the sense sometimes that they were entrepreneurs. Absolutely. There's a big difference between, and I find it even in this buy side as well. I come from a small cap, micro cap, private business, startup structure type environment. I've gravitated, certainly, we run so much more capital, 1.7 some odd billion dollars, where investment strategy involves investing in the largest entities now. But we look at startups in different areas as well and analyze that from what I used to do in my past. But really, that whole business was immersed in that. In fact, as companies got bigger, you know, they started needing leverage. And that's not something we provided. So there was a very natural progression for them to go to the bigger banks that can provide them leverage. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a uh, bit of a insight into the first energy days. Like I said, I've always been- Don't talk about that very much anymore. <laughs> but when he, when, he, when he started chatting, he, yeah, you get a little teary-eyed. It was a great time. Seems like a, kind of a golden age that- uh, I was very lucky to work with like these superstars. Mer Murray was an important aspect. People talk about him a lot. D Brett Wilson and Jim Davidson were the characters of it. And they were huge supporters for me. They just, they pushed me along. They catapulted me, you know. And the amount of marketing and setup and development and the enthusiasm that Brett had and the vision he had to create the name and the image of the firm is, it's all on him. It, it was a phenomenal job. And I just, I was there for the, to catch the wind with the sails and enjoy it with, with them. Well, that's a flashback to the 90s, but maybe to re fast forward to today, we can do a update on the your current investment thesis on, yeah. uh, on energy investing. Last time we talked, the idea was that more or less it was a supply crunch to simplify it, not enough money going into the industry and uh, created an opportunity. Yep. Do you still view it that way? Yeah, I think I think that uh, again, from a, a perspective of the industry and not the equities, but the industry, we would have said back in December or fall of 2020, imagine three legs of a stool, supply being in peril, demand is out of control, and OPEC appears to be in control. Those three things were holding up these businesses that were wrought with debt and structured for growth and thoroughbreds, if you will, spending multiples of cash flow and all. And they were all modifying and develop, redeveloping themselves at that time. We didn't know what, but they had these three powerful stool legs on them. Throughout that period in the next two and a half years, those stools remained very much intact and helped develop, help these companies redevelop. And today, they're businesses with no debt. They focus on dividends, regular and variable. They buy back their stock. They pay down debt if they want to, or but they can control and manage the amount they have. They can buy back stock. They can drill inventory up. They can buy other assets if they want, because they're cash rich. 
all these things are very different than spending multiples of cash flow, grow your volumes, decline rate increasing, and debt getting out of control, issuing equity all the time, trying not to dilute yourself, and playing games with cost of capital. That world was coming to an end for the majority of the production of this country. And that, let's call it just the basin was maturing. And so we saw that and we flocked to that concept. But since then, and more recently, there have been pockets of supply growth globally, predominantly in in the US. It's been short cycle oil. You could see it in these massive transactions that got done by the super majors. They're buying short cycle oil. They can't even go after the long cycle economics because the back end of the curve doesn't justify it. It's backwardated. So they have to transact and they're telling you that we need to bring on short cycle oil right now or oil prices are going to spiral out of control. The oil price being where it is today is not a bad price. It's everybody's expectation got to being that it would be 100 or 120. This price is extremely profitable for these producers. And while they've also reduced all their debt and restructured themselves into these, these businesses of distribution, and they're very profitable at this price, the market, on the other hand, says, oh, unless the price goes higher, you're not worth anything. We'd rather move this money into these growth tech future that is wrought with assumptions and risk. So I think they're leaving, to coin the sailing adage, they're leaving wind to go find wind, and that's a big risk. And I would be, while the world is divesting of energy at a record pace right now, I think it should be doing the opposite because the risk of owning that sector is the lowest I've ever seen it. It's a lot lower than I would have said in August of 2020. In hindsight, we look back and it was a great call and we did well with it. But we took risk at that time because the company still had debt. We didn't know if OPEC could stay in control or not. They stayed in control long enough for these businesses to get clean. Now OPEC looks like they're wavering a little bit. It would be great if they would have all been united in putting another million barrel cut on the table. They didn't. And that weakened that stool. Also, the supply is weak now. It's not in peril. It seems to be that there's a little bit of short cycle pockets of production that is alleviating the pressure of supply, but demand remains violently out of control. And that for the simple fact, we won't be able to change that because we are not in control of it in the developed world. It's the developing world where there's between five and six billion people that use violently less oil than we do. And I mentioned it to you earlier, Canada uses 22 barrels of oil per year per person. The U.S. uses 21. We, by all standards of the globe, are pigs when it comes to using oil. China uses 3.3 barrels. India uses 1.9. And Africa uses 1.1 barrels per person. Now, what's even more alarming, actually, is take Canada and tweak one of our luxuries that we have. Let's say we want to be cooler more often, air conditioning more often in the summer somehow, whatever it is. We multiply that by 39 million people. In India, you 
tweak, and I mean just ever so slightly tweak a necessity that they need, that they don't have, let alone the luxuries. You multiply that by 1.5 billion people and your demand goes out of control. So people have heard it over and over that they want healthcare and they want buildings and infrastructure and they want transportation like us. Hey, they don't get anything like us. There is no mathematical way it can happen. Mm -hmm. But let's give them a little bit of what we have and demand is uncontrolled. I don't even know where we're going to get it from. Mm -hmm. Mr. Chris Lebicki and uh, Steve Lark brought up Jevons' paradox too, where the idea is that it's more efficient the more you use. So developed world and uh, everywhere else is just going to keep going. If I'm correct, I think yeah, they're, they're they're way smarter than me. Those two so <laughs> don't let me talk over their heads or anything. But the concept is basically that energy begats energy. Yeah, you, you need more energy. To use. But the other side of it too that I think Steve has said before, I've heard him say it too, and it's right, is it also allows us to provide a lot more efficiency to get the developed world up the curve faster. Yeah. The more efficient, the more you use. The more, right. And we, not only that, but we can now introduce a way more efficient hospital, for instance, into the developed world than the hospitals we would have developed. Or we'll fight wars more efficiently even than we used to fight them, right? And so it's more a matter of supply disruptions and how what pace will the developing world tolerate the pace that the developed world is trying to control their growth? How long will they tolerate us trying to control their growth? And I'm seeing that all come apart. The talk about BRICS is subdued for a little while here. That probably has a lot to do with the geopolitical issues that have developed with the Ukraine and the Middle East and Taiwan. And we're in the most elevated geopolitical issues of our lifetime, really, that you and I have seen. And there's another example of how you have to think about investing. When the Arab-Israeli conflict developed, oil prices shot up six bucks. And within a week, it was down below the price that it was before the, the invasion. And just behaviorally looking at that, you say to yourself, wow, the market is trading on the hope yeah, exactly. That what they want to have happen, exactly. which is peace. Yes. The, the, that's the higher risk. That was the higher risk at the time. It was riskier to be long at that time. It, it's riskier yeah. to be, it, you should risk, the less risk investment was yeah. to make the investment of escalation. That's what uh, Nassim Taleb would say. The threat of war and oil prices are not always the same thing. <laughs> and everybody's just in a holding pattern, holding their breath. <laughs> What's going to happen? I know we're now seeing some issues in the Strait of Hormuz. And some uh, potential issues with the Houthis invading and, and attacking some of these ships. And now they're stopping production for a little while. These are all little disruptions and opportunities of production ads and production subtraction that are going to make this thing volatile in the short term. But I can't emphasize that demand appetite in the 5 billion people. And that's where all of your growth in new population is coming to, and you're taking a billion people that are in poverty, and the plan is to bring them out of poverty. And I think I've said this before to you, that's like taking a billion people and addicting them to oil because <laughs> they don't use oil yet. And we're going to get them out of poverty and we're going to addict them to oil like all of us, right? And so 
I see that that is going to keep the medium and long term very opportunistic. And we can get caught up in the day trading and what's going on right now. But I'd say as an energy investor, your job is to look at the medium and long term. The prognosis looks outstanding. And the risk of investing today is so low because of the health of the business. Some people would point to the paper markets on the reason why oil prices have been so volatile. Why are oil prices so volatile? Yeah, I debate this with a lot of people. I, I enjoy debating this one because I don't know either necessarily. I, I also come from a philosophy, and I, I, my partner Dave, I know, believes this too. That, and you know, it may just be naive and arrogant because of where we come from in energy, or or there's some truth to it. But the world for a long time has always thought that the American dollar controls what the oil price is. If the American dollar is strong. It's because the, then the, the oil price will be weak. If the American dollar gets weak, it's gonna, the oil price will strengthen. We think it's the other way around. We look at it kind of like the oil price controls the American dollar. They use energy so much. They're so reliant on power to run everything. It's such a big part of everything they do. They're so addicted to it, but unaware of it, that what the, the cost of that thing has a huge impact on the economics and ultimately the, the value of that American dollar. So scarcity in the, in the commodity raises the price, chews up the returns and the opportunity in that country, and their dollar starts to fail. So you, they amount to the same thing, but looking at it as if one creates the other makes you come at it all from a different perspective. Hmm. The uh, willingness to admit you don't know, that's rare. Oh man, no, it's a, that's a confusing one because then there's also the paper barrels yeah. that are trading in the short term. And OPEC and OPEC plus with Brazil now, it's getting stronger. If they really do have all of these groups anchored into their group and they all are going to be in control and cut when they need to, they've never needed to more than ever because the market is offsetting their physical cuts with the ability to trade more and more paper barrels in the market. And in the short term, they can hide the realities of the physical market with that. And that's why I'm saying in the medium and long term, let the physical markets ultimately play their game. Mm. And the the producers look <clears throat> very much like a low risk investment to be in here. This isn't about stock picks, but uh, knowing demand is rising, supply is hit and miss, medium to long term looks good. Where are you, where are you seeing opportunity now? Maybe the mid-cap oily names or? Yeah. We would be very focused on mid and large, even large cap oil still, believe it or not. I mean, look at what happened in the last three weeks and the, the, the draft of downdraft of the sector. And the reality there is we've taken the large caps back down to a value even that they, they fall so fast that stay with your large liquid producers and gas producers too. Gas is more dependent on weather, you know, we'd like to see. And uh, it requires a little more confidence in owning the sector. But what we would say to you is stick with your, you have, we have the luxury today of sticking with the large mid and large cap producers in those plays. So if you're making a call on natural gas today into the winter, buy the tourmaline of the world and ARC and buy Paramount, which is a, high liquids producing gas producer. And then you're buying the large liquid producers 
that you can get out if the mistake of the weather doesn't happen. We don't have control over that. Never in a cycle have we been able to this well into the knowledge of what's going on in the sector, been able to buy these groups at such low valuations. They're always bought up by now, but nobody's playing right now. It's We're all alone in this place. So hmm. you don't need to go down to the smaller caps and run a higher risk that way. If I'm correct, you guys have added an oil field services name or two lately. Are you seeing opportunity in oil field services? Um, well, we, we've been a holder of Secure for all of its tenure in the tumultuous period of its consolidation. I was disappointed like anybody else about the federal non-compete, but it is what it is. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by the number they got for the assets they had to sell. And I remain a holder in hopes that we get a decent distribution from them. I suspect they're debating whether they buy back stock or do a distribution. And in the end, to me, buying back stock makes you less liquid. <laughs> and I want liquidity. <laughs> so there's a catch-22 there for them. Any of the names that have a good distribution, Phoenix has got an excellent distribution, consistent uh, growth returns in his model. Um, John so, Hooks. So in his energy. Did the podcast. Yeah. So in the energy uh, income fund, he has, we hold that there. We're not necessarily having to go I think there's an amazing play for the energy services in North America, but admittedly, we've we've stepped into it three times and been left at the altar. It just didn't materialize like we would have thought. It's phenomenal the lack of money being spent on equipment and growth of new equipment, and yet we're growing volume and, you know, the rig counts down, for instance, mm -hmm. and that's unprecedented. So yeah. at this point, I can only tell that there's just enormous efficiencies being, you know, as these companies convert into these manufacturing businesses, they're seeing enormous efficiencies and there must be technological advancements that are allowing them to produce more with less drilling and less fracking and because there's no stress on the pricing like we would have expected. So I still say that Getting into energy services is, is a more risky way to, to play, but we have our oil, gas, wet gas producers. We dabble in the refining group a bit right now. Probably something like uh, 18 to 20% of our assets are in what we call alternative energy and energy technology. That's all part of the energy game too. It's We aren't looking at one sector and fighting against the other being fossil fuels versus uh, alternative energy. We just don't think that you can abandon one for the other. The risk is enormous. There are politicians and media out there and even f pension funds that would say to you, we have to abandon this one and we should be investing in the new one. Kind of zero sum. Well, I think that they're, they're abandoning the assessment of risk. And and I think in some cases, they're breaching their fiduciary obligation to explain the risk to a naive in investor or listener. And I certainly see it just walking around town and talking to friends when they hear what the media have to say or a politician has to say, and they challenge me, I can tell by their story that they're just buying into that line without understanding what's entailed in it. Getting... COP28 talking about getting off oil 
that made all these people think we're getting off oil. That's a ridiculous statement. There's no alternative to it. And we aren't even admitting our addiction to oil. And if people knew what the, how much it touches their lives, they would realize that's an irresponsible statement. And so I'm not here to get frustrated by it or let listeners get frustrated. I'm here to say that will create an investment opportunity. <laughs> and that is in the conventional energy fossil fuel market in the medium term, it looks very healthy for that reason. Right. Um, before we move on, also, Mr. Rennie Amaro and McDilger also did the podcast. So, coincidence that your favorite stocks are, they've all done the podcast. There's right. a yeah. correlation there. <laughs> it's an incredible group of people. Yeah. I'm very lucky to have been able to, you know, share it with them because, like I said, it was, it was an education for me with all these entrepreneurs. It seems like a lot of people view it as a zero-sum game where you're either uh, in one camp or the other, fossil fuels or alternatives, but in reality, it's everything. We need it all. If we're going to spend all this trillions of dollars in this new world and we're going to set up incentives for them to do it, our approach was from the start of that when we started that area, which was in 2015. By then, we looked at the wind and the solar panel businesses and we saw where we were with hydrogen and I just saw nothing but shrinking the margin down and too much risk in others. And we decided that we would try to f- invest in the ways that we need to fix those problems. So building a lot of wind and a lot of solar is one thing. How do you store it in a bulk? And we started looking into that. And next thing you know, we've got a fairly aggressive investment in a bulk battery storage business. We see the water usage through fracking to be aggressive. And we see a water problem. So we invested in a water recycling business. We saw that we could use, create energy from waste. So a biodiesel business we're invested in. We've recently invested in a a business that's going to help develop a trading market for LNG, global LNG pricing that is inevitably going to develop here. And You've got to have a, you've got to have a trading desk to trade the pricing, and, and if it's going to be done on the, on the scale that we're going to do it at, and so we put some money into one of those investments, and and that all amounts to about sixteen or eighteen percent of our assets as well, and so there's a balance here. It's this is a very complex fund of multiple subsectors that we're playing against each other and and moving moving around capital. Are you seeing opportunity in LNG? Is it going to be completed? How do you get exposure to LNG? Are you bullish? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So, you know, LNG is a m- more like, I don't think it's it's easy to get directly invested in it without getting invested in the construction side of it. And those businesses have longer lead time and a lot more volatility in the potential outcome for the costs of the big projects and whatnot. To me, LNG, how we look at it, is more like where are the major flows going to come from and go to? The intakes and the offtakes. Obviously, in Canada, the biggest question is that line has to be charged and full of gas. And if we're not ready at the time it needs to go where's all that gas going to go does it back up into our system for any length of time 
we're not in a position right now where I feel excited about the idea that we're going to have a new source of sales. I'm worried that it's going to be delayed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's, I want to get shifted back to excited that it's going off. No different than the Trans Mountain on the oil as well. Yeah. Another point of sale globally is invariably healthy. And both of those processes are under attack from time and money and need to be, um, one of them is getting overwhelmed by an over, over cost overrun the Trans Mountain. The other one was more managed, but they're having troubles with necessarily timing. And that can really affect your markets in the short term. And going back to my comment about volatility in our sector will reign supreme in the short term, but fundamentally, globally, the market needs, the developed world for security purposes needs Canada's resources. And we're building out lethargically our infrastructure to provide for that. And it'll it'll benefit us over time. We just need, dare I say, better leadership to manage that. Another critique of LNG is that due to the nature of the fact it's commodity, you might get a temporary bump in price, but eventually it'll just come back down to a commodity-like scenario and you'll uh, it gets driven down again and it's kind of a false hope. Yeah. Do, do you look at it that way or is it? Well, weather does that too to you, right? It's like you're constantly in our job assessing the risk of those situations that could stymie your thesis versus opportunities that develop. And sadly, the opportunities that develop are never things that the market has a positive emotional reaction to. Like, a war is not a positive thing that people think about, but it's a positive thing for the the industry, right? Sanctioning a government and a, and a population and the production so that others have to scramble to get it and it's a, it creates, that's great for my industry. It's bad geopolitically. So elevated geopolitics tend to be something we look forward to. <laughs> and unfortunately, Today, the market is trading on emotion. The market doesn't want inflation to happen. The market doesn't want geopolitics. And so it's forcing in the short term the market to counter those things. And I think that is winding up an elastic that can rebound the other way pretty hard. The more it does this, the more I encourage people to not follow the herd here with this global growth trade that's happening and actually buy these businesses that are being traded in their dips right now, old economy and businesses like energy. What are your thoughts on natural gas? Are you bullish, bearish, in the middle, too Um, hard? Yeah. Again, that is, we're in a seasonal period on it right now. I think in the short term, no matter what, you're always going to have a seasonal issue. And so every year, the same thing <laughs> every every year it's the same thing but this anomalous thing that happened where the global gas infrastructure got rejigged because of the russian issue every year that goes by people figure out their problems more and it, it gets more normalized so what we saw last year that anomalous seven dollar gas in the middle of summer that was a product of a 
Europe getting caught off guard. They're getting their ducks in order now. And it's going to happen less likely to them. So the weather becomes more predominant of an issue again. And and I have a hard time investing in in weather. Put it this way. I, if the market starts to invest in a cold winter, then you want to bet against it because they've gone too far. And if they're betting on a warm winter, then they've probably beaten it up too much. And right now, the market's starting to see that the winter's coming in weak. Weather-wise, it's not burning as great. So the price of the commodity is weakening. And there'll come a point where the market oversells it. And that's our entry point. It's kind of counter, counter cyclical thinking. Energy buy side's been um, reduced. Some would say decimated. There's basically you and Mr. Eric not all left. Do you view that as an opportunity, or how do you think of it? Yeah, I think it's sad. Actually, I I, I wish there was more, and then it would mean less marketing and having to tell people what we're doing. Uh, because there'd be more faces kind of promoting the sector. But it's telling about the attitude of people and how they view energy. And and it it all spirals back to, in my opinion, being a lack of awareness of our addiction to the to the commodity and what we just how much we use it. You know, I used to use this comment back during COVID. And it still applies today. Now, as everything gets back to normal, we're not going to the mall and buying seven things. We're still buying them off of Amazon and having seven cars, vans come to the house with seven ridiculously packaged items. And you got to call three of them back to pick up the things that didn't fit. And that didn't, we shifted to a more usage environment and we didn't go back from it and so i see our demand growing and like i said earlier in the the podcast here that's just the developed world the develop that's our luxuries of the vans delivering products to our house the developing world they just want a warm shower once a week they want to be able to cook the food on a stove every once in a while. When they're sick, they want to be able to go to a, a hospital and have the bare minimum of stuff available that all requires enormous energy. And all we've offered them is variable, expensive power alternatives. And they're just not at the point yet where they can be given. I, you know, I've, you've heard it in different iterations from various people, but the bottom line is, the transition is going to come with a power source we've yet to invent. <laughs> it's probably it's just something we don't even know yet because none of the stuff that's on the table can mathematically and I can say in good conscience will replace what we're doing. So it's going to be here for our lifetime and be a part of all of it. And I'd say as an investor, embrace it all as as part of your life and. And we, we'll offer you that opportunity. Think about it. Be pragmatic in your, in your thinking when you read articles and, and, you know, we got to expect that journalism, especially in Canada is very biased right now and it's dangerous and that should not, as is, uh, what's gone on with social media. 
And people are focused there instead of the realities and common sense and logic. The energy industry, the energy service industry, I think these guys are all so immersed in this business and understand it so well. They're all very confident and positive in what they're doing and restructuring their businesses, battening down the hatches for the war against this anti-energy movement, knowing you're going to need this product at the end of the day. And I would say in my 31 years now, I've been in the business, this is the most prolific time from an opportunity and low-risk perspective that I've ever seen. Hmm. Do you see opportunities for maybe another energy-oriented fund in the market or is two enough? If I were to do, well, we have three. We have an income fund, an energy fund, and then we have what we call energy alpha, which is our long, short, and private equity. That amounts to about $1.7 I think. If I were to build a fund today just to have some fun, I'd almost go into the sector that is exploiting and exploring still. So that takes 70% of the production in our basin, Is it call it manufacturing today. There's 30% of it that's still doing what we used to do. And I'd be like, let's build a fund of higher risk and let's buy these businesses that are less liquid, smaller, more risk in their results that they do. Access to capital will matter. So they maybe you can build them debt structure deals too. All of those things are the area that if I had the energy to do it, I think I'd go there. But I feel like a kind of a dinosaur almost now. <laughs> and I'm watching guys like my partner, Dave, and the people he's talking to. And I'm like, I'm not line, wired for the new world and how they got to think and, and go forward. And uh, they are, and they should be looking at that. The new generation of exploitation and exploration in energy is a is an opportunity here, I think, in Canada specifically. Yeah, if you could line up a, a mini headwater, a mini carve, yeah. a mini cardinal. You, you also get underneath the radar of the anxiety that a lot of them feel, and that's the regulation. Regulatory body, the regulation is a nightmare. And that's the first thing we got to tackle when we try to turn this sector around is we got to, first we got to tackle the regulations and then we got to tackle the negativity internally we have over energy in Canada and start bouncing that stuff back off and actually patting the sector on the back instead. But I'd say that's kind of how we the order regulations and re- the regulatory bodies will are hurting the larger the smaller guys might get away without having to be burdened by that just because of the random and the, the scarcity of how much activity they're doing. U.S. rate counts we touched on a little bit. Some would say the U.S. well productivity is a good proxy for the industry. Do you view it that way? And what are you seeing? I would I would say I won't speak for my partner, but I would say. I got caught off guard because a rig count going down implies production will slow down. The rig count went down and their production went up. And I'm I'm generalizing and simplifying. And that's obviously to do with things that I'm just no longer in touch with anymore. And that's the level, that goes to my point about being a dinosaur and not understanding the technologies, the power of a, a, a drill bit, the technology of 
downhole production uh, enhancements. Uh, it's happening at such a quick level, clearly, that that these these guys are able to put short cycle production in the market way faster than anything I was aware of. And uh, so I think you got to throw that theory, like it's the baby with the bathwater kind of deal here. Hmm. American ingenuity, I mentioned it on the podcast before and everyone discounts it. And it's never a good idea to bet against uh, American entrepreneurial. Uh, it sounds cliche, but- yeah. it- I learned from a couple of guys years ago, Black Max and uh, Dean, I forget his last name, and uh, a couple other intelligent tool guys who basically said to me, it's actually the offshore where a lot of the technology gets developed. Mm -hmm. Massive capital put into those areas and the technology makes its way onshore and then into the shallow basins like ours eventually. I would also say that when the super majors, super major service companies, they're also the guys leading the charge when you're looking at long cycle new areas of exploitation. But none of that long cycle is being encouraged. It's not economic to do. It's too risky. And so I also, again, I just, I always thought technology was actually contracting when in fact, what happened this year with growth in volume clearly shows there's an awareness. And maybe it was also just the simplicity of converting from a thoroughbred grow, grower to a manufacturer. There was just so much hair to cut there. And these businesses are flourishing with higher production as a result. It's crazy. I'm happy to see it because I think that it's painful in the short term here. But I also think that it has softened the landing of the recession that I think is inevitably coming. It would have been much more catastrophic. The SPR releases last year, the China slowdown, the overproduction from Russia slowed down the inflation issue. This year, you've got that new supply keeping oil prices low that is allowing the world to manage in a very brittle state with lo- with prices that they can handle. I don't think the world can handle $90, $100 oil right now. It would be a very difficult thing. I think listeners should understand though, $75 oil is just fine. Right. It's awesome. <laughs> the uh, Goldilocks zone. Well, it's a, it's we, if we're not 10% of the S&P, we're 12 mm-hmm. in earnings. And we're only 5% of the representation or even four. So you've got leeway there. The distribution, the yield is 6%. And the yield on the S&P is 1.9, last I checked. So you've got room there. So you own the sector with this massive buffer. I can't emphasize enough. You own it with less risk than you think you own it. But all the media will tell you you own it with risk because it's going to go away. And so people don't want to own it because they think it's going away. You should own it because it's like owning gold bars right now. Yeah. Ridiculous. Uh, Warren Buffett think, apparently agrees. What does he own? Like 30, 40% of Oxy now? Yeah. Like that's getting crazy. Yeah. He made his bet. Yeah. The uh, psychology investing. One question came from Twitter. To fight the institutional imperative to always be bullish on a sector-specific fund. How do you do that? 
Look, I, I can tell you with comfort and confidence that my clients would tell you that I've had several years where I've told them, I'm here to tell you what's going on, but stay away. I'm not going to tell you that I'm a consummate bull, which would be dictated by that. I, I think my my partner, Dave, is that way too. We've built an infrastructure around ourselves where when I make a statement like in 31 years, I've never seen it this good, I want people to recognize and listen that means something because in 2015 I said get the hell out and, <laughs> and that was a period of time where between 15 and 2019 that we built a lot of new businesses helped businesses start infrastructure pri- our private holdings went up at the bottom of a cycle you build your private entities up we built a knowledge of the new energy space that was competing, the alternative energy space, that was a period of treading water, if you will. And that was a message we relayed to our clients adamantly. And I think our success subsequently has come from our clients recognizing that we went from bearish to neutral to bullish, and they and they respect us for that. So that's that question you have means a lot to me. And I'm Absolutely. I like to wear my heart on my sleeve for sure. Yeah. I got nothing to hide on that. Speaking of alternative investments, can you have a big win on that? Let's see here. Oh, you're talking about ABEX. Yes. That well, I touched I'm, on that a bit. That was the LNG trading okay. desk. So okay. Dave came to me with that one and pitched it. And really he was the 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 muscle behind it. So uh, good on him, man. I, I love to see that. Because this company was also Curry from Goldman was retiring. He's going on the board of this thing. And Dave's looking at it and saying, this is a a trading desk for commodities, uh, LNG and other new new commodities that need a vehicle to be able to trade their, their volumes. And it made a lot of sense to me. There's going to be a lot of new metals that will need it as well with the new new push towards transition and and all these different energy sources. But they were doing it wrong, in our opinion, because they were issuing equity constantly in their trading. I forget the term that's used. But in the US, you can, when someone wants to buy stock, you can, one in every 10 shares can be a new issuance. And so through the day, they're diluting themselves every day with new issuance. So we got in the middle of that and said, hey, go raise the money you need. And stop this dilution and and get you guys stronger in that dialogue and can and we ended up becoming one of their largest investors, mm-hmm. institutional investors through that and got it into our alpha and our energy fund. It's done very well since, but yeah, it's been a good win. But I think I expect more from that, substantially more from that business. High risk, high reward, very illiquid, very small in the fund. Again, we're we're not looking at those little things individually to make a difference in our fund as an aggregate, sure. But really, at the end of the day, I can't emphasize enough what I talked about earlier today. Large liquid producers are still an incredibly safe bet to own in this sector. You don't need to leave that group to go take risk right now. It's incredible. You can imagine how many people come at us with ideas. See, do you want to look at this? Do you want to look at that? Look at this nuclear deal. Yes, nuclear is going to be a great opportunity, 
but you got to own it private. It's a three to seven year wait time. And the outcome is very binary. <laughs> I can I can own Canadian natural resources today on a risk risk reward basis way more. People forget to understand the risk I'm taking owning CNRL, not the opportunity. Everybody's focused on why you should buy something. Look at why you shouldn't. And then you'll realize where you should be with your capital right now. There's no reason to take a lot of risk and energy today, but you should be aggressively exposed to it because we're all using it and it's in peril. Hmm. Well, we um, talked about the updated investment thesis, LNG, US well productivity, natural gas, where you're seeing value, why things are volatile. Maybe to end on a lighter note, I'm usually ask best investment you've ever made or seen in this sector. Ooh. You know, actually my best investment I've ever made was one that I was very flattered and honored to be included was probably back when I was still a sales, institutional sales at First Energy. And I got a call from Clayton Wojtas mm -hmm. and he said, I'm going to start this business called Profico. And he ran me through the idea. And I, I didn't really even listen. It didn't matter. It was just Clayton telling me to do something. And so I remember I, I actually gave him a commitment and he, the whole thing got unraveled. And when he came back to me the second time, I gave him half the amount. Mm -hmm. And it was one of my best decisions and one of my dumbest decisions. The best decision to do it, mm -hmm. the dumbest to cut it in half. Yeah. <laughs> it was an exceptional return for me doing absolutely nothing but picking up the phone and taking a call from Clayton, which I appreciate greatly. Mm -hmm. I would say probably the second one I'm most proud of, again, has nothing to do with my knowledge of it. And it's when Mike Rose asked me to consider, he was away on the road with us. He's in the airport and talking to me about the idea of creating a royalty company because things were bad and value and royalty could be leached in value. And I'm looking at him going, you know, I, I of all people should know what he's talking about. And I'm, I'm just lost. But I was like, okay, I'll, 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 I'll do that. And he's like, well, I'll consider a board seat. And I'm like, yeah, I, I will. And, and I, it, you know, he was so far ahead of me in his knowledge of what he was doing, which as much as I admire that, I'm insulted by the fact that I didn't know the way he did and good on him. That was a, that was a super cool fun run as a private co. When it went public, I had to get off the board because I was in conflict. But um, those were two very fun, enjoyable businesses to invest in and one of them participate in too as an active uh, officer. Uh, another question from the White Walker on Twitter. A.K. Trent Bame, one of your old business oh, <laughs> He calls himself White Walker. Yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> he's got a big following. Oh, right on. Also has been good on the podcast a few times. So He showed, he sent me some pictures of him catching a, a pretty nice looking trout. And he was just jumbling it around. And 
I'm just like, Trent, you got to do this better. You got to look better. So that's uh, really funny because the question coming from Trent is your a request for the supply of the top three bull trope fly patterns. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I'll tell you, if you want to catch one on the surface, which is rare, you either got to catch it by already having a little cutty on your line and the bull goes after it. Or I would use one of these styrofoam patterns called a fat Albert. And the fat Albert optimally has a, th a red thread belly on it. Yeah. I think that red thread pisses the bull off and it comes up for it. Right. Yeah. Guaranteed success. Yeah. Well, that's uh, <laughs> that's funny that he asked that. What a what a bum! Yeah, shout out to you, Trent. Thank you. That's a cheers. Great conversation. Uh, my pleasure for doing this again. Thank you, and good for you, man, for stimulating this this industry. I've watched it grow. I'm honored and flattered to be a part of it. And the people that you meet and <clears> interview <throat> are such a huge part of the uh, the pillars of it. So Thank you. there's a there's a new group coming out. Uh, they're they're all uh, young, hungry, and awesome, and I would encourage you to seek out some of those people too, because guys like us, we're just talking about the past. They're looking forward, and you need to you need to expose people to those guys too, what they're thinking and doing. Well, thank you. We can end the formal conversation there. So, cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode. If you liked what you heard, check out rosebros.ca where we will have upcoming shows. Until next time, happy coffee drinking. <laughs>